I'm Leslie. And I'm Steph. And this is Church Historia. Welcome back to our second episode of our second season of Church Historia. In this episode, we're going to talk about Justinian and Theodora. And Justinian stands out alongside Constantine when we talk about the great Christian emperors of late antiquity. So we're going to look at his story and the story of his wife, Theodora, and really the journey that they went on. And Justinian has this vision and this destiny that he wants to fulfill about restoring glory to the Roman Empire and creating this unified Christian empire with all that glory of Rome. And so we're going to look at his story as he goes on that attempt and particularly how it interacts with theological controversy Mm. about the nature of Christ and these different opinions on how that metaphysics breaks down and how he tries to address that question of disunity. There's a lot of drama and intrigue in this episode. There's a lot of scandal. It's very soap opera-esque. I feel like each episode could be its own movie or soap opera because Justinian and Theodora... They're like this power couple that each have their own histories before they meet each other. And then when they get together, it's like this very strong presence. And I just, this is an incredibly interesting episode from that perspective. So be prepared for a lot of drama. Yeah, if you ever thought that history was boring, I promise you it's not. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Justinian and Theodora are are big deals, okay. very big deals. If you don't know who they are, that's fine. Oh, what would their um, couple name be? <laughs> Justor, Justiora. Just I kind of like Justora. Justora. Yeah. All right. That kind of sounds. So we're trendy. talking about Justora. In yeah. Episode two. Hashtag Just. If you would have said that, I would have known immediately yeah. who you were talking about. Hashtag Justora. Just Has, I can't even. Hashtag Justora. Can't even get it all out. Okay. Good. In addition to being this epic power couple, they're also super controversial, at least in in and around their own time. I don't know that sort of modern historians find them controversial, but certainly during their reign and then in the years following. And they're generally either portrayed as saints and saviors or demons and whores, quite literally. There is a rumor that Justinian's father was a demon, like actually demon spawned, impregnated his mother. He's half demon. So if that tells you how people felt about him. Yeah, wow. Real divided about these folks. Yeah, there was uh, no holds barred in critiquing the royal couple. Stora, man. Yeah, yeah. And then Theodora most likely did some type of sex work in her life. Mm. So it's hard to tell with the source material how much of that is true and how much of that is sensationalized, particularly because she's a woman who exercises a lot of power. That's Mm. kind of the age-old way to discredit women is to call them some type of whore. Right. So we'll talk about her background here in a second, but it's not far-reaching to think that that might have been something that was a part of her life, but also some of the historians that were their contemporaries and right after have some pretty uh, salacious stories out there, and it's hard to tell when it's the same source that says that Justinian's father was a demon incarnate and or they, you know, saved Christianity and were a champion of orthodoxy. So saints or sinners Hmm. will let you decide. Yeah. You too can decide the fate of Justora. Indeed. 
Let's start with Justinian and a little bit about his background. His uncle was Justin. So again, we're in the Eastern Roman Empire. They understand themselves to be Roman. So a lot of these names are going to sound very Latin. Um, His uncle starts off as a pig herder and joins the military, works his way through the military ranks, ends up in a position of, of... relative power ultimately ends up taking over the throne hmm. and that's quite a latter accession there. yeah again like we mentioned last time not a true meritocracy but okay we went from herding pigs to emperor in one generation so okay. you mm-hmm. know they, they got something going for them yeah. and justin does not have any children and so he brings his nephew to the capital and gives him an education. Justin was illiterate and uneducated and wanted the opposite for Mm. Justinian. So Justinian is very educated, very smart, raised in the capital, given political office. As he gets older, he does really well. He kind of starts amassing more and more power and authority and becomes the power behind the throne while Justin is still alive. Theodora, on the other hand, her father was a bear trainer the animal? Yes, the, the animal. So as Rome became more Christian, gladiator combat became less appealing. It didn't kind of sit well with Christian morality, but people still like entertainment and spectacle. So they replaced the gladiator combat with chariot racing. Ah. And there were different factions among the cities. So you, there were different colors. So the big ones mm. are the greens and the blues. And, you know, you, you have your favorite team. You root for your team and yeah. very strong part of your identity. And, you and nobody gets you. torn apart and, and and killed. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, I mean, we, we hope. Unless there's a... Imagine it's a, bit, I imagine it's a bit like watching F1 or NASCAR or something, right? Right, indeed. Going could very happen. fast. Could, could wreck. Okay. But we wish everyone the best <laughs> and, and finishing the race intact. Indeed. So... The bear trainer was in charge of bears, and they were kind of pre-show entertainment, right? Pre, pre-race. pre Oh. Get everybody, you know, warmed Warm up. up get the, yeah, get the yeah. crowd going. Okay. So that was sort of the world that Theodora was born into. Ultimately, <laughs> her father dies, and her mother doesn't kind of retire quietly into seclusion or like monastic life, but she really finds a path forward for her daughters. And both of her daughters get into acting. Hmm. And acting is, especially as a woman, is a very kind of looked down upon scandalous Hmm. occupation. And it is also one that is also very closely associated with sex work. So when I said that there was a non-zero chance that Theodora had this as part of her history, we know she was an actress that was often coincided with being a sex worker, Interesting. So culturally, there are some gray areas there of what exactly was happening. Yeah, and and again, most of our sources who tell us about the time of her life are really dead set on painting her in the worst possible light. So, okay, what exactly she did, we don't know, but we do know that she had at least one child, and eventually she becomes a mistress of a governor in a province in North Africa. Mm -hmm. So she leaves Constantinople with him, goes to North Africa expecting that he's going to marry her. He does not. They have a falling out. And she makes her way back to Constantinople independently. And it's likely that this is where she encounters the Amenophysite position. And 
she would have been kind of exposed to Christianity prior in her life, but she really takes on this particular style of... During her journey back to Constantinople. Most likely. It's possible that she may have had some exposures to it growing up, but we know that she stayed with and had interactions with some priests and bishops and spiritual advisors who were Nophsites huh. themselves. So okay. it, so we know, and we know that when she comes back to Constantinople, this is a position that she has yeah, okay. that she feels really strongly about. So most likely she encounters that on her journey. And that's going to become relevant to some things later and on. And we'll talk about what that means in a yep. bit. Yeah. Okay. So Justinian and Theodora meet. He was probably about 40 when they met. She was in her 20s. Oh boy, that, that era, he's on his way out. Well, he actually lives a really long life. Oh, good. If you make it past like five years old, yeah, you have a pretty good chance of living into your 60s and 70s. Oh, okay. It's just really hard to make it past five. So, That's interesting. Yeah, so you do have, you do have people who are old yeah. by our definition in antiquity and even the medieval period. It's just that making it out of childhood is particularly difficult. And also if you're a woman, making it through childbearing is also really difficult. So he's 40, she's in her 20s. Yep. And they meet and by all accounts seem to have fallen in love and seem to have been a kind of true love match. It certainly wasn't her reputation. Her reputation didn't <laughs> didn't help anything. <laughs> there were actually some laws that had to be changed before they could get married. Oh, Whether that's interesting. Yeah. So because of Justinian's social status, he wasn't allowed to essentially marry anyone mm. who had been an actress. Mm -hmm. So whether those laws were specifically changed for them, we don't know, but the timing is awful suspicious. So was marriage tied to any sort of spiritual, religious tradition at that time? Yeah, so like when they get married, they get married in a church. Right. So it does, at, le at least for them, mm -hmm. and I would say of the upper class, that, that idea of a civil and religious okay. co-union or co-status yeah. of being married That's is a thing. Is a it thing. would have been a thing. So, so it's interesting that he's changing laws, using his power to change laws so that they can participate in this religious ritual yeah, you know, and also, and especially in her case, he's not emperor yet, but he's the heir apparent. Okay. So also for her to have legitimate status mm -hmm. as his, ultimately as his empress. Yeah. Okay. So especially for them, having that kind of joint civil and religious marriage is, is important. And so they get married. Ultimately, Justin dies. Justinian becomes emperor. Theodora becomes empress. And that's worth calling out because it's not always true that the spouse of the emperor becomes empress. Sometimes they just kind of are a consort or a, kind of another title, but they don't get the full Just because you're married rights. to the emperor doesn't mean you are the empress. Correct. So in Theodora's case, she is, and they are a really strong partnership. She's very smart. He relies on her perspective a lot for things, and she, she has a lot of sway in his decisions and his kind of goals as as emperor and his main goal like his the thing that he is convinced of deep in his soul is that he's a man of destiny and his destiny is destiny. to restore rome to its glory okay so what's happened in his mind that has taken that glory away so by the five 
hundreds when he's ruling. He's going to rule from 527 to 565. So he's a good long reign. This is like 200 years after Constantine. So this is 200 years after Constantine. The empire is much smaller than it was. Now we really can talk about the Byzantine Empire as separate from the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire in the West has fallen. Rome has been sacked a couple times. Oh dear. There is no longer a kind of truly Roman emperor on the throne. So that's probably the biggest thing is, yeah. is Rome Rome has fallen since then. And there's been, on the Eastern side, there's been a lot of expansion and shrinking of those borders. We talked about the end of last episode, this idea of one empire to rule, rule the world. <laughs> yeah, to rule them all. But right, one emperor, one empire that rules the world is a Christian empire. It, not... Not really going yeah, so okay. well at, at the moment. It. So Justinian is going to restore. Excellent. Kind of all of this. Um, man of destiny. Man of destiny. And so he does a, a few things around this. And one is he revisits and freshens up, tightens up the legal code. So huh. Justinian's legal reforms are kind of a big known thing in legal history, um, mm-hmm. set a lot of precedent for law that ultimately makes its way through Europe down into modern legal understandings and conventions. So he's making a lot of reforms there, a lot of tax reform, and this is also going to include religious reform. But before we talk about the religious reform, there's what I think is a fun side story here about this power couple and Justinian's reign that almost was not as long and glorious as it. Oh, trouble. Trouble for Justora. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of these tax reforms and legal reforms, there's, there's some unrest of, you know, you start tightening things up a little bit Mm and can, it can chafe on people. People don't like change. They don't like change. Certainly not when it includes increasing taxes. Um, No, not. So, I mentioned before there's, in the Hippodrome, there's these different factions that have their own racing teams. And so Justinian favors the blue team. And the blue team's main rival is the greens. Okay. And in addition to all these reforms, there's some frustration about the fact the emperor is supporting the blue team. And there's some, Mm. shall we say, extracurriculars that go on in Mm. supporting one's team. Mm. 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 Maybe some betting, maybe some oh, mild assault, maybe maybe some murders. Mild um, assault, murder. Okay, you know it's so the gladiators are out. But we just have gangs <laughs> who support just... horse racing, essentially. Oh, no. I, okay, it's not directly fair to call them a gang, but it's also not an awful analogy. So okay. between the tax reform and people getting antsy, and then Justine in support of the blues, and them kind of getting away with stuff. The Greens put on this demonstration in the Hippodrome where they accuse the authorities of letting blues get away with all of this crime. Okay. Of like, oh dear. You're, not be- you're not being fair. You know, people shouldn't be able to get away with stuff just because it's the Emperor's team. Okay. And it escalates. Okay. And it escalates to a like, full-blown, wide-scale riot. Oh, dear. Spills out of the Hippodrome into... The streets, property is being destroyed, things are being set on fire. One of the things that burns in this riot is the Church of Holy Wisdom, or the original Hagia Sophia. So it's not yet the Hagia Sophia that we know today. Got it. But it is... It's the original. It's, an, it's the original. Okay. It's an important church landmark of the city. Again, 
last episode we were talking about, did Constantine set up this capital to be a kind of spiritual capital as well as a political capital? Yeah. Yeah, this okay. is one of the crowning churches of that sort of spiritual okay. capital side of things. So things are not going well. The city is burning. <laughs> People are rioting. Oh, Justinian tries. Destiny's not going well. It's not going very well. He tries to crack down on it. That also doesn't go very well. And so he is about to say, mm, never mind. I'm I'm abdicating. I will oh. just wow. exit stage right. Okay. So he's kind of hiding in the palace with his council trying to decide if he's going to escape by boat and functionally abdicate or not. Oh dear. And Theodora is there. And so she steps onto the scene and speaks into it. And she has this really wonderful speech Ooh. and it's very dramatic and it comes should playing. pick it up music playing there's, yeah, there's she steps swell. forward there's a spotlight, spotlight um, right. mm-hmm. and so she says in my opinion flight is not the right course even if it should bring us to safety it is impossible for a person having been born into this world not to die but for one who has reigned it is intolerable to be a fugitive may i never be deprived of this purple robe and may i never see the day when those who meet me do not call me empress If you wish to save yourself, my lord, there is no difficulty. We are rich. Over there is the sea. And yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether you, having once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that the royal purple is the noblest shroud. Actress indeed. Yeah. So she's like, Pony up, friend. Uh-huh. Put on your big good pants. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, so Justinian steals his courage and <laughs> ends up putting down the riot and then goes on to rule for another 33 years. Wow. So Theodore is a big deal, a big, a big, big role Huge to play. Huge influence, yes. In, in Justinian's saying and his reign. And while this is one of the few times in the historical sources that she speaks I think it's really apparent that she speaks all she the time. She has power. Oh, yeah. And she does. And so she plays this really active role that empresses following her. Not all of them, but some of them will take that as their cue for their ability to participate uh-huh. in the body politic okay. and in power. And so I had mentioned that as part of the riots, this Church of Holy Wisdom burned down. And so Justinian is determined to rebuild it. There's this idea... Robert Browning, who we talked about in the last episode, this church was begun by Constantine. It was finished by his son, Constantine II, and it symbolized uh, the place of the empire in the divine scheme of things. Hmm. So you had to rebuild it. So Justinian's not going to do this by half. Again, we are me- he's a man of destiny. That's right. So he doesn't just call in builders. He calls in architects and mathematicians, hmm. and they build this brand-new, boundary-pushing structure, which is the Hagia Sophia as we know it today. Oh, wow. Um, and Justinian apparently, when he he was very involved in the plans, he would go in and check on it, but they were doing something so new that it was really hard for people to understand the vision of it until it was done. Hmm. And then when he sees it for the first time, he says, Solomon, I've surpassed you. He was so oh, wow. taken aback by it. So I'm looking at it now. This is from... 500? So the minarets are a later addition after Constantinople is conquered by the Islamic Empire and it got turned into a mosque. Uh, now it's a museum. But that dome is almost original. So 
one of the things that makes the Hagia Sophia so impressive is that unsupported dome. Yeah. And the original dome fell down in an earthquake, say a few decades after it was completed, Mm. and they built it back slightly bigger. Okay. But it was fairly close to what you're seeing now. And I think the inscription that they, that, Justinian and Theodora had put on the altar at the Hagia Sophia, I think is an interesting one as we talk about orthodoxy mm-hmm. and what, what it means. So the inscription says, We, your servants, Justinian and Theodora, offer to you, O Christ, what is yours from what is yours. Hmm. May you accept it benevolently, O Son and Word of God, who became incarnated and were crucified for us. Keep us in your true faith and increase and protect this empire that you have entrusted to us for your glory with the intercession of the Holy Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary. That's not just Justinian and Theodora for the glory of God. Right. right? There's a lot going on in there yeah, about, there you know, Jesus is the Son and the Word of God uh-huh. who became incarnate. <laughs> it says was crucified. It doesn't quite talk about the resurrection, but we have this idea of mm-hmm. the sacrifice. Um, entrusted us for your glory. There's some things there about. Yeah, right. The, the, yeah, the empire that you've entrusted to us. Uh-huh. So again, this idea of a divinely appointed ruler who is ruling because God has orchestrated things in such a way that it's them and not anybody else. Mm-hmm. We've got a little bit of theology here around Mary, who's the holy mother of God. That's a big controversy. Is Mary the mother of God or the mother of Jesus? Can uh-huh. you birth a deity? Yep. What does that mean? So there's a, there's a whole lot of theological expression yeah, there is. Packed into this inscription. And I just think it's really interesting, but it's also a really good segue into talking about the Monophysite controversy and where Justinian fits into that, because Justinian is a theologian by passion as well. Universities don't exist yet. Those will come later in the medieval period. So it's not like you can get a degree in theology at this point, but Justinian reads a lot, he thinks a lot, he writes a lot, and is very involved in theology as an individual person and then within his role as emperor. And again, wanting to maintain this unity Mm. of the empire and Mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that he is stewarding and looking after the souls in his care. Another motivation for Justinian, I think, is this idea of, again, if Justinian is appointed by God because God favors Justinian, then you want to stay in God's favor, which means you want to be supporting correct orthodoxy as well. So mm-hmm. all of this, this idea of unity, this idea of being divinely favored, but that doesn't give you carte blanche, right? Mm-hmm. You still have to stay in God's favor and you can lose that favor by being either personally super sinful or by supporting wrong theology. That is top of mind for Justinian as well as the other emperors. And for him, the big controversy for his reign is around the nature of Jesus. So we have the Council of Nicaea under Constantine saying, hey, Jesus is God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Mm -hmm. And so now everybody's trying to figure out, what does that mean? Yes, what does that mean and how does that break down? Because there's a number of ways of understanding how that could work that have significant implications, but also get very technically metaphysical. And so in 451, so pre-Justinian, right, mm-hmm. there is the Council of 
Chalcedon, who works through all of this, particularly in relation to Nestorianism, which says that there is one person, Jesus is one person, but has two hypostasis and two natures. And the hypostasis is like the underlying substance, like the fun, the most fundamental hmm. thing of a thing. Okay. So Nestorius says there's two of those in Jesus as a unified person. And Chalcedon comes back and says, there's one hypostasis, but yes, there are two natures. Okay. So Chalcedon okay. definition says, we follow the Holy Fathers with one consent, teach men to confess one in the same son, our Lord Jesus, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man with a rational soul and body consubstantial with the father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the man in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all of the ages of the father according to the Godhead and in these later days for us and our salvation born of the Virgin Mary the mother of God according to the manhood one in the same Christ son Lord only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly unchangeably indivisibly inseparably the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creeds of the Holy Fathers have handed down to us. Okay. So that is a tremendous amount of metaphysics yeah. to to. <laughs> pick out. But where this comes to is things like, how human is Jesus? Does Jesus have a human will? Does Jesus have a human spirit? Is his mind human? Like, if God's omniscient, did Jesus know everything? Mm. Or did Jesus only know some things? Mm -hmm. does, does child Jesus have to learn stuff? Does he already know it all? Mm -hmm. Was his spirit or soul human to carry the weight of the sin of the world? Or is that the God side of things. Yeah. Was it, do you have a human will, God's will? So it, things we're still trying to sort out, I think, in it, our own minds today. Yes, it has implications for who Jesus is. I'm okay with some of this variation because some things are mysterious right. and also give you a headache if you look at them for too long. The main point is we, we have Chalcedon in 451 and much like all of the other church councils, not everyone agrees with this assertion of this one person, one hypostasis, two natures argument. And so the Greek and Latin churches follow Chalcedon. The Coptic church and West Syrian church follow another position where they agree with two natures united without mixing. So they're on the two nature camp instead of the one nature camp. You have the moderate historians who were technically condemned at Chalcedon but are carrying on. The Syriac Church of, and the Church of the East, it's not the West Syriac Church, but essentially the East Syriac Church, continues to follow Nestorius and just kind of... Okay. They're, they're going to continue on. Now, in particular, because they are geographically separated from everybody else and linguistically separated from everybody else, and at a certain point come under Persian rule, mm -hmm. they will continue on with their Nestorian-based views God. for a really long time. So unlike... The Arianism that kind of dies out. That's what I was just going to say. The East Syriac tradition yeah. kind of carries on because it it's a little bit more, I guess, protected. Well, um, and it doesn't sound like anything's being burned and people aren't being exiled necessarily over this. Uh, they will be. They will be. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. They will be. More to come. More to come. 
So another way of saying this is Europe at this point, absolutely pro-Chalcedon, wants nothing to do with the Monophysite position. Which is the Monophysite is, and I'll say that the, in, to be clear, because I'm remembering Theodora is of that position, yes. which I sense there's going to be some tension here. Yes, yes. And so the Coptic Church in particular is pro-Monophysite. So North Africa is fairly pro-Monophysite. Most of Byzantium kind, kind of depends. There's a mix. And Monophysite is? Monophysite is a version off this position of one person, one homostasis, one nature. Gotcha. Okay. And, and people take their compliance with the church councils really seriously. Mm. So, like, if you're not listening to Chalcedon, like, what else are you listening to? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. then, you, then you're, mm -hmm. you're not really following the true church in the true way. So, mm -hmm. Justinian, again, grand vision, grand destiny, wants to restore the glory of the Roman Empire, which also kind of means at least being in tight relationship with the Western part of the empire, if not actually conquering it. So he's going to have to blend this religious divide as well. And so technically, the Byzantine Empire falls Chalcedon. It is illegal to hold the Monophysite position between 451 and the mid-500s when Justinian's ruling. There's various levels of persecution there. Some of it's more hmm. active than others, but... Under Justinian, the rules are technically on the books, but they're really inconsistently applied and they're not really systemic. And then under Theodora's influence, some of the Monophysites who've been exiled are allowed to return to the capital yeah, and they can there's some, kind of start preaching again. Of, and yeah. so it's it's a little squishy under Justinian. Mm -hmm. And so he's... Well, he's got some conflict of interest. The person mm -hmm. he loves follows a tradition that has historically been... Persecuted, right? Yes. So, yeah, yeah, okay. So he's walking a, a fine line. And for him, he feels like ultimately both sides are trying to say the same thing. It's just a slightly different understanding in, in terminology. Okay. So he's kind of convinced if he can get everybody together, like we can we can work through this. We're all oh. actually on the same side. Okay. So he, being the theologian that he is, decides to publish Edict of the Three Chapters um, in 534. And essentially what he does is he condemns three thinkers who are already dead and have been dead for a very long time and who died within the fold of the church. But he says they're the ones to blame. Oh. And so what he's trying to do is essentially undermine Chalcedon so he can call a council to redo it to get everybody back on the same page. Okay. So he publishes this edict, but it starts this kind of back and forth with the Pope and with some other high-ranking church officials, and it just makes the whole thing really messy. And again, Justinian's trying to have good relationships with the Western part of the empire, but he's pissing off the Pope, so that's not helping him out super well. So ultimately, he summons a council in Constantinople. Which is a little bit controversial because it's harder for the Western position to make it there in time to be represented hmm. from it. There's a whole lot of little things that were done, but ultimately it reaffirms the Chalcedon position and condemns the Storianism again, which kind of 
puts them back where they were before. There's a couple yeah. moderates in the middle who like are kind of convinced, but it doesn't do what Justinian was hoping oh dear. to do. But I think it's interesting that we have this division within the empire that's a practical one. We have this division within the royal couple of which strain they follow. You have Theodora's influence bringing back some people who've been exiled mm-hmm. and kind of helping them get into high-ranking church positions. Justinian wants unity above all else. He he has an idea about how to you know, bring everybody back together, but now he has to convince everybody else writes these edicts, goes back and forth with the Pope a lot, (laughs) and kind of ends up exactly where he was, but having had a lot of swirl in the middle. Why do I just want to, like, I want this, I want to root for this guy. Like, there's something, you know, even though he feels like he has this, he has this destiny upon his shoulders, and and maybe it's because I, I think it's just adorable that he's legitimately fallen in love with this woman and has given her a voice and has, you know, it seems like a... This should be a movie. Side note. Yeah, I I feel like it probably This would be a, a good really movie. good movie. He's trying real hard. And unfortunately for him, his reign is kind of a high point within Byzantine history, but it's not, I think, the high he wanted. Hmm. And it's not sustained. He's both the end of the glory of the Roman Empire and then also in his attempt at restoration, has created a bunch of new things and new systems. And, like, from a periodization standpoint, he really stands in the middle of two errors in these two styles. And ultimately, he and Theodora both die childless, Mm. which is an interesting one from this idea of succession. Yeah. And so I thought on that idea of succession, we might talk a little bit more about... Divine right, divine appointment, and how Mm. all of that is getting kind of related, right? It's one thing for an individual to be called to this position of leadership. It's kind of another thing for a family line to be called. His uncle came to power, not from power. Right. You know, so what does that mean versus he was just born into it? You know, in one generation, you have two... Two processes happening. There is this sense of of raising and shaping the next generation, whether they're your child specifically or your nephew, in the case of Justinian, into this legitimacy. And also this idea of kind of lateral transfers of power. And so women play a really interesting role in the Byzantine Empire in this succession story because either marrying into the royal family or marrying a widowed empress gives you legitimacy through your kind of historical line. They're your through line to those who were divinely appointed before. There's a couple stories that I think are telling here. So one is a woman named Adrian, who is the daughter of Emperor Leo, who ruled from 457 to 474. So he had a pretty decent reign. But her first husband was probably Germanic. He became emperor. And then when he died the Senate asked her to remarry. They didn't have any children yet, so the position of emperor was essentially open. Okay. And so she ultimately married the court financial minister, who in turn became the next emperor. So she could she could decide, basically, who was going to be the next emperor by Marrying. marriage. Yep. Okay. Yep. And interesting, like, the Senate wanted her to do that. So Interesting that she just didn't become empress. Yeah, she didn't. She herself didn't become <laughs> empress, because that was a little bit too... Too pushing, but yeah. she... Interesting, okay. 
she kind of got the ultimate choice choice there. And then, you know, this idea of the emperor dying somewhere in his rule and being survived by his wife is one that happens a lot, especially when you're, you know, out on military campaign. And so in the 6th and 7th centuries in particular, this women played a really critical role if their husband died as advisor to their children mm. and the child emperor until he got old enough to okay. rule for himself. So that regency position was a really active one. It wasn't a passive one. Like you, you were ruling in your child's stead, which again is interesting when we think about gender politics at this point. And maybe the woman who gives the best, most complicated version of this story is about the Empress Irene, because we can see all of this come to play in her story. So she marries Leo IV, who's the son of Constantine V. So there's a lot of Leos. There's a lot of Justins (laughs) and Justinians. There's a lot of Constantines. But Leo IV dies really young. And Irene becomes the regent for their son, Constantine VI, who was about nine and a half at the time. And so she has a good almost 10 years of ruling as his regent. And when he becomes old enough, she doesn't want to give power back over. She she likes being empress and she likes being in charge. Mm -hmm. And she's not not particularly interested in letting Constantine the sixth um, you know, (laughs) take over. Okay. And so they get in this extended tug of war overpower he gets some support gets her exiled but encouraged to reconcile with his mom so brings her back (laughs) and then ultimately she takes over from him and has him blinded Uh, has him blinded yep her son yep which is apparently what you do to show mercy to your political rivals instead of having them killed wow yeah yeah and that's the cliff notes version the extended version of the story her son wanted to marry his mistress, but Irene didn't like her. So instead, he had his best friend marry his mistress so that he could... Be around her? Yeah, continue to be with the mistress. And he had to marry somebody else. And ultimately, he divorced someone else. And that caused a really big controversy because divorce was possible, but not looked well upon. Yeah. And so even though she became the divorced empress and was exiled to a monastery... People still viewed her as the legitimate empress, not the new one. So, like, the whole story of Irene and Constantine VI is, uh... My goodness. should probably make a soap opera out of it. It sounds as though. Yeah. But Irene is really, really interesting because at one point she's toying with the idea of marrying Charlemagne, who we will talk about later this season when we talk about development of Europe, but he's a big deal. And ultimately, he's crowned emperor by the Pope, and part of why... Pope may have decided to crown him emperor in the West was because Irene had claimed the title of emperor in the East. So she, so she was like, "Ah, I'm not empress anymore. I am emperor. I am the one in charge. This is my position. And that was shocking and not ladylike. Sure. But if there's a Senate, how do you go against? You bribe, conjole, persuade, and otherwise get enough of them on your side. And so she rules as, the sole emperor for a few years um, before ultimately there's a coup and she's exiled and then dies a year into exile. So here we have this this woman who marries into the royal line, then becomes the royal line, gets to take on power as regent while her son is a child. He comes of age. She decides 
Nope. And then she rules for a little while. So next episode, we're going to talk about iconoclasm and her line. So this, this kind of story of Irene and her son and his first wife who he divorces, that thread is going to carry us through the line of who's emperor for the next hundred years or so as we talk about the rise and fall of iconoclasm in the Byzantine Empire. So blood matters, but marriage also matters. And again, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself into our next episode, so sneak preview. Mm -hmm. But this idea of having been married into the line makes you legitimately part of it. And so you can kind of never be separated from that. And that carries with it so much legitimacy of being of the family that was blessed and ordained. There's a lot of death. Mm. There's a lot of assassination. There's a lot of exile. There's a lot of exile. exile. (laughs) Next episode, we'll really see this back and forth. So yes, being emperor gives you a lot of power and a lot of influence. You also have to hold on to it. Mm. And that can be a difficult thing. And, And if you usurp the throne from someone, especially if that person dies in the process, how do you legitimize what you've done in your reign, especially within this broader Christian context of not murdering and not coveting. And so it, it is really interesting how much upheaval there is in the history plays by Shakespeare, particularly the great king cycle, Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, and Henry V. Everybody takes oaths of loyalty before God, and then they <laughs> just backstab each other. But every time they do, there's this justification about betrayal and sin and like you you earned it and because I am giving divine justice or divine retribution my hands are clean and just this Mm. this kind of constant dialogue not only in Shakespeare and not only with the Byzantine Empire but really even throughout this whole medieval period where military prowess and and feats of arms are how you prove yourself and how you show your toughness and your legitimacy, but then also you have all these Christian values about turning the other cheek and not murdering. And I do think it points to the fact that as people, we can hold beliefs that are somewhat or completely contradictory. And how do you justify that to yourself and to others and to a certain extent to God? Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Church Historia. We really appreciate you joining us on this journey. If you want more, you can always check on our website at churchhistoria.com where you can join our email list. And do be sure you subscribe to this show on your platform of choice so that you will always know when we have a new episode. And as always, if you enjoy what we do, we'd love it if you would share it with others as well. So if you like it, spread the word, tell your friends. We would be so grateful. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks.